our topic today uh, is communication and conflict with the understanding that conflict many, many times comes because of poor communication. Uh, so we want to address communication uh, at a very basic level and then how we build on that to deal with conflict. Uh, so we'll jump, jump into that. Uh, a few uh, fundamental ideas first before we discuss a few things. First is that communication uh, is essential to relationships and to counseling. So I was sharing uh, in our large session that uh, counseling by its very nature is a conversation. Well, a conversation requires words. A conversation uh, requires communication. And we'll look at some principles for that. Uh, but we, we cannot minimize the necessity of good communication in counseling and in relationships, right? Uh, are you two husband and wife? Yep. Yes. Okay. Uh, when you don't have good communication, how is your marriage? Terrible. Bad. <laughs> bad, right? It's terrible. But when your communication is good, even when you have a really hard day or even when you disagree on something, your marriage is better. Your relationship is better because you've communicated clearly with one another. Uh, and if, if we as husbands and wives, as families, are supposed to be unified, we have to talk about that. We have to, to communicate that we're all on the same team. We're going at this together. Uh, so communication is essential. Um, and it's, it's necessary uh, for us to understand the role of communication and counseling. Again, that, that conversation. Uh, in part because clear communication in counseling and in ministry is a model for the people that we're, we're teaching, right? Uh, so if you are leaders of your church and your church members see you speaking harshly towards your husband or to your wife, they're going to think that that's okay, and it's not, right? Or if they know that you're a counselor and in your counseling room they're coming to you and you're speaking rudely or you're cutting them off or you're not listening, that's modeling those things for their relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have to understand the importance of communication in counseling, in ministry, in our own families as we lead other people. So a question, a discussion question for us. What do we risk or what is at stake? What will happen if communication is bad? What do you think? First of all, people come to you for helping them with the mm -hmm. problems. And if, if you don't communicate it, you don't know what the problem is. Right. So you give them wrong advice. Yes. And yes. So if we don't understand the problem, if it's not mm -hmm. communicated, our advice is really bad yeah. advice. Right. right. So if I ignore what James tells us, and instead of being quick to listen and slow to speak, I'm slow to listen and quick to speak, what I'm speaking is going to be very bad. <laughs> it's not going to be helpful, right? Uh, so we risk speaking wrongly uh, if that communication is poor. What else do you think is at risk? I was thinking a lot about, like, um, before you want to speak something to somebody, you have to think about it. Mm -hmm. You have to have, I need to have a right emotion. Because sometimes I feel like yeah. I have to emotion, like, emotional and I speak. I should 
good. Yeah, so when our emotions control us instead of us controlling our emotions, we speak badly. We may, we may speak before we think. Uh, we may say unkind words, maybe out of anger or out of frustration, those emotions. Uh, or, and we, we're not going to speak what's best for them, right? We're not going to be speaking what is loving to someone else uh, if, if there's bad communication there. And ultimately, we're not honoring them. We're not loving them uh, if we're not communicating well and communicating clearly with them. Okay? Uh, so a couple of principles for us as far as good communication. It's important for us. Good communication first is a dialogue, not a monologue. What I mean by that is good communication between two people involves two people speaking. Not just one person speaking to the other. Okay, it's a dialogue, not a monologue. Well, sometimes it's hard because, like, communication between parents to the kids. Yes. Sometimes we just speak and then we ask them; they just sit there. Right, right. It is hard. It yeah. is hard. I would, I would submit though. I would uh, say that if when our kids are shutting down, when they're not speaking yeah. back, right. it's probably because they've learned not to speak back. Or there's been, or they feel like they're not being heard. Uh, so if if we foster a sense of of parents hearing their children, you speak and I will hear you. I may disagree, but I will hear you. Yes. They feel like they can speak, right? And as as adults and as parents, if I'm honest, as a parent, we have an inclination to talk a lot more, right? Think about a situation. I'm, I'm going to contextualize this. I have a three year old. I love my three-year-old, sweet boy, uh, but he likes to do things his way, as all three-year-old boys do. Right. So sometimes I will say, David, go get your shoes on. Go do this. Go do that. Go do that. And if he says, but mama, I have the inclination to say, no, but mama, go get your shoes on. Obey. He needs to obey. But what happens if he's trying to tell me, mama, I can't get my shoes because there's a spider in my yeah. shoe? Yeah. So even with a three-year-old, I need to be inviting that dialogue, not defiance, but I need to be inviting a, a, a dialogue so that he knows if it's important, right. I'm going to hear him, and he can speak. Well, with the Asian culture, mm-hmm. we were told you listen to the adult. Right or wrong, you listen to the adult. You don't talk back. Yes. That's, a, that's a no-no. Yes. So we kind of, as a kid, I don't like that rule. But yeah. Somehow we abuse it on our children. <laughs> right, without, right. Yeah. And yeah. unintentionally, but we yes. did that to our children too. And that's not uncommon. Right. Uh, I was raised very similarly, mm-hmm. even here in an American culture. My mother, I remember explicitly her words saying, if an adult looks at you and says the sky is purple, you say, yes, ma'am, it is. Right. We do not defy them. Right. Uh, and while I understand we should not be defiant, we should not be disobedient, we should be able to speak. Right. Right? Uh, and so understand that good communication understands that both parties speak, yes. speak appropriately, mm-hmm. but both parties speak. That it's not defiance for a child mm-hmm. to speak back to their parents if it's done with honor and it's done with respect. Mm-hmm. Right? Because my son, for instance, that example of saying, but mama, there's a spider in my shoe, is communicating that he's not safe and is communicating, I want to obey, but I can't. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not being defined. Uh, so we have to 
I think we have to recognize that the scripture places weight on both hearing and speaking. And even as a parent, even for parents, parents need to hear and understand and not just speak. Uh, it's a good rule for us. I have a couple of passages here. I said the James 1.19. I said that earlier today. Uh, that we are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I think when he's saying this slow to anger here, uh, it's meaning slow to emotionally respond. I think we can safely put other emotions in that category uh, to say that I don't just hear one bit of it. I don't just hear the, but mama, and I get angry. No, no, no. I need to be quick to listen, and then I speak, and then I emotionally respond, right? Whatever that looks like. Proverbs 18.13 says, If anyone gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and his shame. Now, those are weighty words, right? Mm-hmm. If I speak before I listen, I look foolish. Yes. Shame is brought on me because I'm speaking improper words. Proverbs 18.2 uh, says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. Uh, now, when we when we hear that, I can think of somebody who that characterizes them, right? Uh, that person is foolish. They do not understand. They speak before they listen. But if I'm really honest with myself, I fit into that category sometimes. And so what I want to help parents do is not fall into that category. <laughs> I need to reflect. That's where my humility comes in, true, uh, in there. And all of these things are true, even of parents to their children. Even though children are to honor their parents, we want to uphold that. Uh, they still need to be following these principles, right? Scripture doesn't just say, if a child gives an answer before he hears, right? No, if anyone gives an answer before he hears, these things are applicable uh, to us. The second principle undergirding this is that we should listen with the goal of understanding, and not just listen to respond. And there's a difference there. This is good for us as counselors, but also as I help parents. Uh, So often when we hear someone speaking, we are listening and already formulating an answer or a response before we hear everything that they've said, right? We're all guilty of that. You're you're all laughing, you know. Uh, And we have to fight, right? We have to fight to say, no, I'm going to listen and hear all of that. And then I'm going to respond to all of that. Sometimes that means that after someone speaks, we say, okay, can you give me a minute to to think about what you just said so that I speak rightly back to you? And being okay with the silence for a moment so that we speak wisely and not foolishly. Uh, But we should listen to understand, not listen to respond. Um, Remember that Luke 6.45, I referenced this verse earlier, says that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So when we listen with the goal of simply responding, what's in our hearts is that my opinion matters more than what you have to say. Yeah. That's unfortunately what that means. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's reflected in our hearts. Um, and so what we want to encourage parents to do, flipping that to the, their children, is seek to understand what's in their child's heart. Right? What's the desire? What's the motivation for what their children are saying? Uh, so when a child says something back and they're being seemingly defiant right, or disobedient, like the, but mama, I can't put my shoes on. I shouldn't immediately go to, yes, you can just go do it. I just say, well, why is he saying that? 
Is he actually being defiant? Or is he saying there is a legitimate reason he can't? Right? What's going on? The reality. Uh, what's in his heart? A desire to obey, and he can't, or a desire to de- be defiant? Right? What's in their heart? As counselors, as we lead people and teach people, it's our jobs to pull out those things. Right? So we're thinking about conflict. Let's say conflict in a marriage, and there's disagreement. What's at the heart of that disagreement? When you say that I want this, what's driving that desire? Right? What are you really wanting that you're not getting? What do you think you deserve that you're not getting? What's, what's in the heart? It's our job to pull that out. Uh, I really like Proverbs 20, verse 5, and the way it says, it says, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. So give this idea of like the ocean. But a man of understanding will draw it out. So think about, imagine with me, you're on a boat in the middle of the ocean, and you're trying to draw something out that's deep. So you're, imagine that there's an anchor at the bottom that you're drawing out. How much rope do you have to pull before you actually get to the anchor? Same thing here. But it's our job to pull that rope and pull that rope and pull that rope until that anchor comes out. We're not just looking for the rope or the, that buoy at the top of the rope. We're looking for the anchor. Uh, so to get at what's in the heart. Uh, third... Three of, of four, third of four. Communication should always be appropriate to the situation at hand. Communication should always be appropriate to the situation at hand. I'm pulling this from 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Uh, and here, Paul is encouraging the leaders in the church. And he says, and we urge you, brothers, to a couple of things. First, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Then be patient with them all. So he tells us there's a couple of different categories of people. The idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. Okay, The idle being the sinful ones. That's the way he's saying that. And of these three categories, we approach them very differently. For those who are sinning, we admonish them. We correct them. We rebuke them with love. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we respond to them one way. If someone is faint-hearted... They're weary, they're tired, they're run down. We don't rebuke them, we encourage them, we lift them up, we help them, right? And then the weak. Our brother or her sister who has been battered by a storm is just tired, right? We help them, we lift them up, right? But then Paul says, be patient with all of them, which is hard, (laughs) if we're honest. Uh, But our communication, again, should be appropriate. What we say, what we counsel uh, or speak should be appropriate to the situation at hand. Um, And this is a good lesson for us as counselors, uh, but it's also applied to parents. Uh, So I'm going to kind of speak in both of those. For us as counselors, we can take this at face value. If we have someone who's coming and they are being disobedient to the Lord, let's admonish them. That communication if there's someone who is faint-hearted or weak, would encourage them and help them, right? Be patient with all of them. But for parents, where do our children fit in these categories, right? Some days, uh, if it's especially if it's early in the day, <laughs> it's probably the idle. <laughs> it's probably the sinful. It's probably the defiant. Uh, and if that's the case with our children, let's admonish them. Let's correct and rebuke. But let's say it's the end of the day. Our kiddos are tired. 
They're weary. It's been a busy day. They've had a rough go at it. They're just faint-hearted. They're just weak. So when that defiance or that uh, those harsh words or, or bad words come from our children at the end of the day when they're tired, let's put aside correction for a moment and appropriately encourage and help and spur them on and make the rebuke secondary. Does that make sense? Yeah. So but making the problem is at the yeah. end of the day, the parents are tired too. Yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. So there's no patient there. That's, you're <laughs> abs- no patient. Yeah. You're absolutely right. But that's where father and mother, husband and wife, can do this with one another. Yeah. Right. So at the end of the day, right? I'll, I'll use a personal example. On the days that I stay home with my kiddos, by the end of the day, my husband walks in from work. I'm exhausted. I love my babies, but I'm exhausted, right? And my temper might be a little short, okay? But that's where my husband can step in, and he can either parent directly and me take kind of a back seat, or he can say, remember, Kristen, this discipline is not for our, without a purpose. All right, let's, let's train them. Let me encourage you, right? That's where we're a team. Yeah. Father and mother, husband and wife can be a team and do this with one another even and communicate appropriately as opposed to piling on rebuke when we don't need rebuke, right? Uh, So we can't always lean towards admonishment, only admonishment. But we also can't always lean towards encouragement, right, or only help. Our children need rebuke. They need correction sometimes in love. (laughs) They need that. There's a balance to be had. But that balance, I think, in many ways is, is dependent on the situation as to which way we lean. Not always one way, not always the other, but balancing. How do you do with children that um, only change or improve when you apply punishment to it? Talking or encouraging, yeah. it don't work. Yeah. So some, some kids just take some, you know, really hard punishment to for them to correct themselves. Right, and it does. And that's a reality when there are kids who, uh, that's just what they respond to. Um, I would argue a little, push back just a little, to say there are still times where they're weary or tired, and even if it's just tired from the Mm -hmm. discipline and the correction, right? So, So both of these things are at play, or all three of these things are at play, but for one kid, maybe it's more the other. And, and after all of this rebuke and correction because they need it, then we come in and we encourage them and say, look, I know that this is hard. I know that discipline is difficult, and it feels like I'm not on your team, but I am. I am for you. I'm your mama. I love you, right? And, and that encouragement that comes behind the discipline and the correction. Uh, so all of these things, I think, are needed, and the patience, of course, <laughs> being needed. Tons of that. Yeah. Tons of, yes, absolutely tons of patience. Um, But all of these are needed at different times and different contexts. So the last uh, kind of foundational principle for us of communication before we shift to conflict uh, is that oftentimes we take for granted that communication is a learned thing. It's not innate. Uh, So imagine with me, and there have been cases of this and extreme cases, imagine that a person is on an island from the time that they are a child, right? No one speaks to them, no one talks to them, none of that, right? Uh, or there are, there's some instances of children held captive, no one speaks to them. They don't know how to speak, they don't know how to communicate because they haven't learned it, 
And beyond simply basic language, right? Uh, communication is learned. And children, taking another step further, children learn from what's modeled to them. So if a child sees that the appropriate response to a particular situation is anger and attack and violence, that's what they're taught is right. Uh, So these ideas, for instance, of of generational family issues, anger or abuse or, or alcoholism, any number of things, it's because these children learn a particular way of communicating or a particular way of living, Mm -hmm. and that's all they know. They're still personally responsible for their sin. They want to get rid of that. Uh, But again, if a child learns from their father, their grandfather, great-grandfather, that it's okay to speak in anger and put other people down, what do you think that child's going to do? Speak in anger and put other people down. Because it's a learned thing. Uh, So all of us have to make an effort to communicate properly, particularly parents for their children, right? So that means for parents, and as I'm counseling parents, it matters how they deal with conflict. It matters how they speak to one another. Are you honoring to one another? Are you speaking kindly to one another? Because your children are watching, even when you think they're not. It doesn't matter if you lock yourself in your bathroom and stand in your shower, which I've had a couple do when they argue. It doesn't matter. Your kids will hear you somehow. They will hear some part of that. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we're modeling good communication, good conflict resolution, two-way communication mm-hmm. as parents and as counselors in our counseling room when we're helping people. Um, and that may mean that we have to spend a lot of time learning that. Uh, if we grew up in a home that that was not modeled well, uh, then we may have to struggle to learn it for ourselves, how we communicate well. So let's shift slightly. Uh, We've done the the foundations of communication. Now, sources of conflict. I've listed seven of them here. We're going to go through each one, uh, one by one. But conflict can come from all sorts of directions, right? Um, It it can come from any of these areas. Let's let's jump into these. The first one is harsh words. I'm taking this from Proverbs 15, verse 1. It says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, right? We can all think about a time, right, where someone said something harsh to us, and our immediate response wells up in us is anger, right? We want to defend ourselves. You're accusing me of what, right? Even if that is true, (laughs) anger, that harsh word uh, comes up because words have power. Words have weight. Uh, We have a saying that I grew up with that said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Right? My husband, jokingly, and I'm sure he heard it from someone, he changed it. Uh, He said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will hurt forever. (laughs) And I think that's more appropriate. Oh, yes. Right? We can all remember harsh words that were spoken to us. uh, Probably as children. Right? Um, So harsh words may be putting someone down or devaluing them or blaming them unfairly, but harsh words uh, that communicate uh, something negative about my personhood, about who I am, uh, that causes anger, that causes conflict, right? Because we want to defend ourselves. Um, Sometimes it's because our pride is hurt. Uh, But I'm thinking here in particular false, harsh words. Um, So anger leads to conflict as a result. 
Uh, just a side note here, I, um, studies have shown uh, that we remember uh, critique 10 times more often than we remember praise. So I, that's so true, right? And maybe even a hundred times, but I encourage parents, if they have any sort of critique, any sort of uh, negative feedback for their children, even if it's a hundred percent true, right? To, to make sure that they are speaking at least 10 times as many positives in the, in that same conversation, uh, because the children need to hear that. One of the ways that I do that uh, as a professor and if you ever, uh, any of my students ever get an email from me, uh, I am very quick to do what I call the sandwich method, in which even if it's something that I'm correcting, I want to affirm, then correct, then affirm again. Okay. So even if it's something that I'm addressing, a correction, uh, that may, be, may feel harsh, I want to affirm them before I correct and then affirm them again after. Uh, so that their takeaway is that I value them, and I'm not trying to speak harshly to them, that I genuinely care about them um, because I want to avoid this. I want to avoid the conflict. Um, so those are two practical applications. So harsh words, number one. Number two, one, another source of conflict is that we fail to hold accountable and we fail to forgive. One of those two things. Uh, where, I'm, where I'm drawing this from is Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Uh, Luke writes, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Uh, Those are, that's hard. That's hard to follow, right? When Jesus gives us that command. But notice in here that they don't leave out the rebuke, right? Uh, Sometimes conflict comes because we fail to hold one another accountable and therefore nothing changes, right? So perhaps a harsh word keeps coming repetitively and no one says, that's not okay. That's not kind. That's not honoring. We fail to rebuke. But sometimes it's also because we fail to forgive. And we fail that when someone comes to us and says, I'm so sorry. I should not have done that. That was a sin against you. Please forgive me that we withhold forgiveness. Sometimes it depends on how they apologize to if this is silly apologizing, yeah, it, yeah. But you say uh, they, they just say that, but no, they're not really repentant. So yes, and we're going to. It is hard when uh, when it doesn't seem genuine. Yes, right? and we're going to talk about in a little bit the differences between forgiveness, one directional that we're required, and reconciliation, which is two directions that we're to strive for. Uh, but we are called to forgive even without repentance, right? Uh, but no, go ahead, Hannah. Yeah. It's just like um, you forgive them because um, you know, like you have a relationship with God and God commanded to forgive them. Yes. But it's also depend on the relationship with their God. And if they do not forgive you, it means they do not obey their God. Mm. So yeah. It's like also relationship with God too. Yeah, and and we do have to remember, like you're saying, God draws a very clear connection between our forgiveness of others and our understanding of our forgiveness in Him, mm-hmm. right? I was meeting with a counselee just this week who is struggling to forgive her husband of something that is very, very bad. Uh, and, and she said, I don't know if I can forgive him. Do I have to right now? And the Lord, in his grace, brought the words to mind to say, what if God waited to forgive us 
before we really understood our need for that forgiveness. And she kind of took a step back and said, oh, you're absolutely right. Right? Yeah, let's say the, the, the Tenth Amendment is, one of them is not adultery, right? Mm-hmm. If a husband or wife commit one of the acts, yeah, yeah. And even though that we know God said that we forgive, yeah. but he committed the act. Right. So it's hard and to forgive, right? It is. It is hard to forget deep, grave sins against us. Uh, and we're going to talk about some of that later. Forgiveness does not mean that there's no consequences. Right? I can forgive my son for hitting me. He's still going to get disciplined and popped for that. Right? Uh, so forgiveness does not mean there's no consequences. Um it means a few other things, which we'll get to. But you're absolutely right. It's, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to forgive. But understand, too, every sin we ever commit is against our holy God. And he forgives us. And he has commanded that we forgive others. No one will sin against us the way that we have sinned against God. Uh, and keeping that in perspective, I think, is, is really important. Uh, so the conflict comes in uh, here when we fail to hold accountable or we fail to forgive, right? That conflict can can keep up. A third source of conflict uh, is speaking before we understand. <laughs> We've talked a little bit about this one, but James 119, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Uh, note the order of that and the speed at which things are to be happen, happening. Uh, we listen quickly, we speak slowly, and emotionally respond slowly. Um, and so sometimes conflict arises when we say words that we should not be saying without thinking first. <laughs> we say words. And, and all of us have been in the position, right, where we've said a word and we go, no, come back in. <laughs> right? Oh, close your ears, Lord. Please help them to forget that I just said that. Right? We've all been in that. But because we failed to obey this command. We speak before we think and before we hear. We are guilty of that. We are. We are guilty of that. And this requires humility. And it requires that we are conscientious, that we acknowledge our own words. And we think through our own words before we say them. uh, Because we don't want to spur on conflict. Uh, Fourth is that we are quick to anger. Right? Uh, All of us have experienced anger. Uh, and though a small portion of our anger may be righteous anger, anger as God feels anger in some small sense, more often than not, our anger is self-serving anger. It's unrighteous anger. It's, you have offended me, and that's wrong, and I deserve to be treated a certain way. So we're quick to anger. Proverbs fifteen eighteen says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. But he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Uh, so, so being slow to anger, this doesn't say that we never get angry. We can be angry over legitimate sins and grievances. Uh, but we need to think through that first. We need to, in a self-controlled way, experience and express that anger. Not be hot-tempered, because that leads to strife, that leads to, to conflict. Uh, we all know people who escalate to anger quicker than others. They get into a whole lot more conflict than others, right? Um, But those who are level-headed, those who are calm and can speak calmly, uh, tend to stay out of conflict, right? Because they can speak in a way that's self-controlled. Next, another source of conflict is that we're prideful. We're prideful people. We can acknowledge that. 
Uh, Proverbs 16:18 says, "Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit, or a prideful spirit, <laughs> before a fall." Uh, so pride leads to destruction and a fall. Uh, but quite often, conflict arises because we fail to acknowledge our part in it. Right? Uh, our pride gets the best of us, uh, and we say, I had no part in that conflict. But what does Jesus tell us? We're going to get to this later. Remove the log out of your own eye before you look at the speck in your brother's. Ouch. Right? We contribute that. Take the pride. Get rid of your pride and acknowledge your part in a conflict. Pride leads to destruction in relationships. Uh, it can destroy our witness to non-believers. Uh, and it, it could lead to the destruction of even material things. It can lead to destruction in all sorts of arenas. It is costly. Uh, it causes conflict. Uh, next, I think this is number six, we are selfish. Not only are we prideful, uh, we are selfish. James 3.16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. <clears throat> so that disorder there is coming out of jealousy and selfish ambition. In other words, idolatry of self. Right? When I idolize myself over loving my neighbor, uh, there's disorder, there's conflict. Um, and that, that flows right into it. But when we are focused on loving our neighbor... Caring for our neighbor and elevating them above ourselves, conflict goes away, right? If my aim is to love and to serve, I'm going to defer to them, right? Uh, now, this does not mean that I never speak up, that I never hold someone accountable, uh, but it means, as Paul talks about, that we consider others better than ourselves, uh, and we, we humble ourselves and place another's interests above our own. I see that in some people, they only see the bad of others, yeah. not the good. Right. So is that selfish or prideful? Mm. If we uh, only see the bad in others, I think yeah. it's I think it's both. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a tendency to want to make ourselves bigger than we are, mm-hmm. and for other people to think better of us than we actually are, and that's flowing right into that. Right. When we minimize other people, yeah. by default, it yeah. elevates us. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. Right. So the the harsh words, for instance, that demean another person, that's for the purpose of making myself feel better, for elevating myself because I'm putting someone else down. And it may not look like that all the time, but that's what it is. It's idolatry of self. Um, So the, the selfishness plays into conflict. Right. And if we're all looking out for only our best interests, no wonder we're in conflict, right? If I want what I want when I want it, and someone else stands in my way, it's going to cause problems. It's my way or the highway, right? Yes. Yeah, my way or the highway. That gets us into into problems, right? Uh, And especially in families where we live so closely together, right? Our family is our closest neighbor. My husband and my children are my closest neighbors, and I'm called to love them. I'm not commanded to love myself. That's going to happen on its own, right? Uh, I have to be commanded to love them. Uh, And lastly here, a a seventh source of conflict is sinfulness in our own hearts. James 4 speaks to this very directly. I use this often in counseling uh, conflict. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, 
that your passions are at war within you. Your selfish desires is what he's getting at. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, you want, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Uh, so what he's getting at here is when we have conflict, ultimately it's because of sinful desires in our own hearts. right? Or a desire that is good that we have distorted and gone from a desire to a demand. Right? The difference being I can desire something and it would be okay if I not get it. If I demand something, I'm going to punish the person who's not giving me what I think I deserve. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? So we've shifted from a, a good desire, good thing, to a sinful desire of coveting. Then we punish and we quarrel and we get in conflict with one another. Uh, so whenever I see conflict in families, I'm asking questions around this. This conflict, what's the source of that conflict? Is it because you have a sinful desire that now you're demanding? Is it because there's pride or there's selfishness or there's harsh words or there's quick emotions? What's causing this conflict? Because I would submit to you that it's not actually that you're not getting what you want. Uh, it's because you're demanding what you want. I see a, um, a couple, a wife, the husband forgot to give her like an anniversary gift. Hmm. And she got mad and she stopped talking to him. Yeah. And then conflict started from there. Yeah. 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 And that spiraled, right? Yeah. From a simple, you forgot something. Yeah. Uh, to, I deserve that you should have right. given me an anniversary gift. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then a punishment. And presumably, lots of other things in the past mm -hmm. that they thought they had worked <laughs> yeah. through. Yeah. Right? A failure to yeah. forgive. Yeah. Yeah. So here we've layered on. Right. Something that's not a bad desire. Mm -hmm. It's not a bad desire to mm -hmm. want to celebrate an anniversary. Right. But we, we demand recognition. There's that's pride. Demand, yeah. There's desire. Right? And then bring in things from the past. Right? Lack of forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, and then harsh words, presumably in response yeah. to that. <laughs> all the above, we got yeah. all sorts of sources of conflict yeah. going on here. when you like, have something bad going on, you just, at that moment... Snap, you just remember all the bad things about yes. that person. You yes. forget everything. Everything good. good. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to talk about in a few minutes. When we say that we forgive someone, that means that we're not bringing up those past things. Because yeah. that's dangerous. That's detrimental. That causes more conflict. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, so when we think about conflict... Uh, I like this spectrum. Now, uh, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about from here on out uh, is not original to me. So I want to give credit okay. uh, where this comes from. This is from Ken Sandy, uh, his peacemaking material. You'll see his uh, name on the next slide. But this is his spectrum. Uh, and he shows us that some of us, when we're angry, we go or we get in conflict. There are two extremes of responses. On the far left here are what's called escape responses, right? When we shut down, right? I can't deal with this conflict because it's overwhelming, right? So those are, that's when we escape. We might uh, minimally de deny, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, it, it just happened once, not a problem. We're just going to keep on going. It's not a real problem when it is. Or we might blame shift. Right? Think back about Adam and Eve in the garden. Yeah. This was their response. 
Uh, well, I wouldn't have eaten the fruit if this woman that you gave me didn't give it to me. <laughs> Ooh, buddy. <laughs> that, that blame shifting. Uh, or escaping in the full sense of the word. Running away. I'm not confronting this problem. We're ignoring it. I'm blame shifting it. I'm, I'm just escaping. I'm just running away. Uh, and this is the tendency of some of us. Others of us go towards the, the right side, the attack responses. And this is where instead of acknowledging my part or talking it out, right, I'm going to deflect. I'm going to attack you so that I don't feel attacked. Okay? So those harsh words, the put downs, right? Uh, so when I feel attacked or I feel conflict, I'm going to put you down so that I feel better. Uh, gossiping. So putting that person down to someone else, bringing someone else into the picture, uh, is an attack response. It's diminishing them. Or full-out fights, verbal or physical, right? Uh, responses to conflict. Uh, because if I fight back, I'm defending myself, right? I'm going to show you why this isn't okay, right? That attack in its fullest form. But what Kim Sandy pushes us towards is this middle box, the work-it-out responses, and he has a range here, a good range. Uh, and the first on the far left is to overlook, right? Uh, that we can overlook some sins. Now, this is not to deny. This is not to fail to acknowledge that they are real uh, and that they are present. But it's to say this isn't that big of a deal. In the grand scheme of things, that harsh word that that person said to me when they were exhausted and stressed, it's not worth it. It's not worth confronting because they already acknowledge what they did. We don't have to deal with that. Or in the very middle is to talk about it, right? Confront the conflict, talk about it together, and seek to resolve that conflict. Uh, that's a great response. And on the right-hand side is to get help. Bring in someone else uh, to speak to whatever the conflict is. Get some mediation. Get another perspective to come and help. That's not gossip. That's not meant to put down. It's to say we genuinely need help. Someone come in and help us who can be an objective third party. All of those are good responses. Okay. Okay, I have a question. Yes, ma'am. Let's say in the, in the marriage, when you have a conflict, yes. right, do you work it out right away or do you like kind of like put it aside and hopefully, hopefully that it's go over? Disappear. And yeah, yeah. Disappear in the thin air and and then the next couple coming, all that coming back. Yeah. So I, sometimes yeah. a couple want to solve it right away. Mm -hmm. Some couple just don't want to acknowledge the conflict. Yeah, yeah. So I think it depends on what the situation is and the outcome is. So there are certainly times where we overlook offenses. Because we love one another, we overlook minor offenses. If it's something that's repetitive or, or really is a conflict, an actual conflict, mm -hmm. let's talk about it. Right? The Bible tells us, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. We need to resolve our conflict. Now, I don't think that that means that you need to talk it through until 4 in the morning and then not sleep. But I think it's speaking to, if you have a conflict, deal with it. Right? Remember Jesus said that if you come to give your offering and you have a conflict with a brother, leave your offering, go deal with your brother, and then come back and give your offering. Right? God takes that seriously. So I think we should resolve things. But it may be really complex. But if you have the tendency to bring things up later on, it needs to be dealt with. Uh, I am very much for conflict resolution. 
acknowledging that perhaps part of that is taking a few minutes on your own to figure out what do I really want in this situation? How can I honor my spouse in this situation? How can we communicate well? All right, let's come together. Let's talk. If emotions get really high, maybe we just need a timeout. We need to step away for a minute, rethink these things, commit ourselves to honoring the Lord. That's where we're going next. And then come back together and try again. But yes, conflict resolution, even if it's minor, um, I think it's a good thing. It might be a two-minute conversation. might be a two-hour conversation. Uh, but yeah, I think that's good. Uh, so I like here, and that was a perfect segue to our next slide, uh, is confession and confrontation. So how do we handle uh, sin that's been committed against us? We're in the middle of conflict. How do we handle that and confront another person? Uh, Ken Sandy gives us a four-step process. I like his four steps. I think they're spot on. Uh, He calls them the four G's of confession uh, and confrontation. The first is to glorify God. More than anything else, our aim in conflict resolution is to honor God. And if we both come into a conflict discussion seeking to honor the Lord and not seeking to honor ourselves, that changes that conversation drastically. Uh, Because even if that conflict isn't resolved, if we've honored God in the midst of that, we have been successful. We would be more successful resolving that conflict, but if we have honored God in the midst of that, that has been a successful conversation. Second, second G, get the log out of your own eye. And this is directly from Jesus' teaching. Uh, Get the log out of your own eye before you examine the speck or the piece of sawdust in your brother's. Uh, So in a conflict, after we resolve to honor the Lord and glorify the Lord, the second is self-reflection. What is my part in this conflict? How did I contribute? Get rid of my pride. What did I do that that added to this conflict? Get the log out of my own eye and I should confess it. I am sorry that I contributed to this conflict in this way. Being very specific. We're going to talk about um, confession here in a minute, but getting the log out of our own eye. And then, and only then, after those first two things have happened, do we go and show our brother his fault, or our sister her fault, right? And this is to be done with grace and compassion, with humility, uh, but we don't neglect this either, right? If someone has sinned, it is a hard one, right? It's hard because sometimes our... Uh, our rebuke of someone else comes across harshly, uh, comes across as accusatory. Mm -hmm. And if we've done these first two things and communicated these first two things, Mm -hmm. then this part, this confrontation, comes across much more compassionately, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, To say, if that person hasn't already acknowledged their fault, ideally they've already done it themselves. Uh, But there is a place for that. Matthew 18 gives us a place for that. To go and, and show brother their fault, their sister her fault. And then four, he says, go and be reconciled. Be reconciled with one another. Restore that relationship uh, together. And move on. Go, go, step away from that conversation. It's resolved. It's complete. Move forward. Uh, go and be reconciled. So those are the four G's there. Uh, some seven A's. You're seeing a trend here probably. Uh, of confession. Uh, so when we go to confess or to uh, ask forgiveness or apologize, he has seven uh, qualifiers for us. 
The first is that we are to address everyone involved, including ourselves, including others, uh, anyone who was involved in that conflict uh, or that sin needs to be addressed. Let me give you an example. So, for instance, if parents are in conflict and they have a heated argument, right? There's some raised voices. There's some yelling going on. Uh, certainly, they have sinned against their spouse. But what happens if their child was listening? They also need to go to their child. They need to confess that to their child, that they did not model that rightly, that their example was poorly set, and acknowledge that they have sinned against their parent. This is hard, right? It's hard for us as parents to go to our children and say, I messed up. I'm so sorry. I should not have done that, and you saw that. Please forgive me. Uh, So addressing everyone involved, and certainly this includes prayer, right? Confessing to the Lord our sin, because every sin is against God, too. Okay, Addressing everyone involved. The second is to avoid qualifiers, like if, but, maybe, don't use those. They undermine the confession. Everything that was said before the if, the but, the maybe is now just negated, right? I'm sorry if that hurt your feelings. <laughs> Whose ownership? Who's, who's the problem there? You are for your hurt feelings, right? That's not a confession. That's not an apology right. if we add a qualifier. Uh, this is a pet peeve of mine, so I could spend all day talking about this, but uh, yeah. those qualifiers undermine a confession, undermine an That's apology. That's why I said some, some apology is not really genuine. Right, right. And we can tell if they're not genuine if they're falling into some of these categories, right? I'm sorry if you took that that way. Yeah. No. I'm sorry I said those words. Those were hurtful words. Oh, I, I mean this, but you, you might understand, you know, differently. Yeah, yeah. That's not a true confession. Yeah. Yeah. A third one here uh, is admit specifically. Call out clear sins, not just general statements. Not, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry I said words that were hurtful to you. I'm sorry I said such and such. I'm sorry I did such and such. Admit specifically. Um, Fourth, apologize very basically, make, make it evident that you are sorry for your sin. I apologize. I'm so sorry that I said that. I should not have. Uh, apologize. And fifth, very importantly, let's not forget this one. True repentance, uh, the one who has truly repented accepts the consequences for their behavior. Uh, so it is not... Forgiveness does not mean there are no consequences. And repentance does not mean that they're free from consequences. Right? When my son or my daughter is disobedient, namely my son, he's older, uh, is disobedient and he says, Sorry, Mom. It doesn't mean he doesn't still go in time out. There's still consequences for behavior. And repentance accepts those consequences. Okay? Sixth, alter your behavior. Change what you do. Uh, someone who repents and confesses and then goes on sinning, have they truly repented or confessed? No. Right? Uh, The mark of true repentance is changed behavior. Prolonged changed behavior. Now we're all sinners. We're all going to fall into traps. We may repeat a sin. But there should be a genuine desire and effort to change. Okay? Lastly, number seven, ask for forgiveness. And allow time. Uh, Forgiveness doesn't happen overnight. 
And we cannot demand it and we cannot force it. Uh, And so when we confess our sin, it may be that a consequence of that is rebuilding trust, is rebuilding relationship, is rebuilding intimacy. And that's okay. There should be an effort towards it, but it's okay if it takes a little bit of time. Okay? I can't go to someone and say, I'm so sorry that I beat you to a pulp and I hurt you and I sent you to the hospital. Now forgive me and expect it to be immediate. And I exaggerate on purpose, but that's what we do, right? We say, well, look, I did everything. I did my part. Now you have to do yours. No. All right? I want to allow time for that. Uh, and ask for that forgiveness. Okay. Uh, I want to circle back to something that I said now that we've talked about the confession um, of the go and be reconciled. Uh, I want to I want to distinguish between this forgiveness in response to confession and reconciliation. Forgiveness being, as I mentioned earlier, the one way, the one direction granting of pardon or remission or or forgiveness, right? Reconciliation being the two-way restoration. Our relationship is restored. Uh, So Romans 12 uh, speaks to the reconciliation. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But notice he says in there, so far as it depends on you. There are times where I may seek reconciliation and the other party is not willing. I am responsible for seeking that reconciliation. I'm responsible for forgiveness. We're going to get to that momentarily. Uh, And I can do all that I can towards reconciliation. That doesn't mean it always happens. Okay. Uh, So, for instance, uh, let's say I have a counselee who uh, is outside of the context of conflict, but who was uh, systematically abused as a child. Right. Uh, And it may be that the, the person who abused her has passed away. There, there will not be reconciliation, right? Or there's a great distance between them. Or that person's an unbeliever and has a hard heart. There's only so much that we can do towards reconciliation sometimes. Uh, but we are commanded to move towards that. So not all relationship after forgive, there might not be um, uh, reconciliation. reconciliation. Yeah, yeah, not all, not all relationships, yeah, may be reconciled. Um, but think about, so remember the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18? Uh, remember the servant who owed a great, great, great debt, right, uh, to his master, and he was taken to court, and uh, I believe the equivalency was several million dollars worth of debt. Um, and the master came, and he said, you know what? Your debt is paid. You don't have to go to prison for the rest of your life. You don't have to work this off. Your debt is paid. Right? And then that servant went and demanded the equivalency of a day's wages. A couple hundred bucks, right, if even. Um, And said, no, I'm going to put you in prison. You're going to have to work for this, right? Right. What was the moral of the story, right? That unforgiving servant was now held accountable for his debt because he was unforgiving. He had been forgiven a great debt, so he was commanded to forgive the debt owed to him. And he was held accountable for that. We're in the same position. We have been forgiven by the grace of Jesus on the cross, we have been forgiven a great debt. And it's out of that that we forgive others because we've been forgiven. And we need to keep that in mind and remember that. Uh, let's go through just a few more things. I do want to give us a few minutes for Q&A here at the end. But uh, forgiveness is commanded 
in Scripture. I won't go through all of these passages, but uh, Jesus commands his disciples to forgive in Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Uh, Paul's writings clearly teach forgiveness. Ephesians 4, 32, forgive as you've been forgiven. Third, our forgiveness is contingent upon us forgiving others. Uh, right after the Lord's Prayer, uh, Jesus talks about that uh, we forgive so that our Father in Heaven will forgive us. Uh, what a weighty thing for us to think about if we withhold forgiveness from someone else, that our forgiveness before a holy God may not be granted either. That's a weighty thing for us to think about. Uh, Mark eleven twenty five echoes that same uh, idea. I mentioned this passage earlier from Matthew 5. Uh, forgiveness is held more highly than tithes and offerings. So what is entitled to the Lord, he desires that we would put aside so that we'd be reconciled first. Okay? Uh, Matthew 5. And then lastly, as I was noting, it's because of the forgiveness that we have received. We forgive because we acknowledge our forgiveness before God. So what does it mean to forgive? Uh, Ken Sandy uses these uh, four, what he calls four promises of forgiveness. Uh, I would nuance one or two of them slightly. I'll say that. But here are his four. First is that I will not dwell on this incident. When I have extended forgiveness to someone else, that means I'm not mulling over it in my mind. I'm not thinking about it. I'm not dwelling on it. When it comes up, I push it out. It's over. It's done. Second, I'm not going to bring this up again and use it against you. So that means later on, let's say that my, let's say my husband has sinned against me. He's confessed it. I've forgiven him. And tomorrow we get in another argument, right? Bring it up. That means that I don't bring it up, right? It means I'm not bringing up things from the past that I've said that I've forgiven. I'm not bringing it up and using it against you. Third, I will not talk to, uh, to others about this incident. Uh, so I'm not gossiping about it. I'm not even using it as prayer requests. Uh, right couched as a prayer request. <laughs> I'm not talking to others. My, the qualifier, the nuance I would add to that uh, is, I think it is useful that we may use incidents to encourage others or model conflict resolution. Once that conflict has been fully resolved and the Lord works mightily in that, I've got some space from that, I think we can use that in a teaching scenario with the other person's permission. Right? So to say there was this conflict and here's how God worked in this and here's what this means. I'm not disparaging the other person. I'm not putting them down. I'm speaking to here's what God did and here's how you need to move towards that too. Uh, so I think he would allow for this. Uh, I allow for that. And fourthly, lastly, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. I'm not holding a grudge. Now, I would nuance this one slightly as well. Let's be wise. Let's be smart here. Uh, if this is an incident, for instance, of repetitive abuse, I'm not going to send that person who was abused back into an unhindered relationship with them. That's foolish. Yeah. right? We can be wise in that. But that means that it's not standing between us in the sense that I still care for you. I want to pray for you. I want to minister to you. Even if I'm not alone in a room with you. That's okay. Uh, but we're pursuing a relationship there. On a general everyday level, let's say marital conflict, everyday conflict, it should not stand between us or hinder our relationship. Once forgiveness has been granted, we are restored back together. We are united back together. Okay? Some barriers to forgiveness here. Uh, we're, we're rounding out. We're almost done. Uh, pride. 
right, can be a barrier to forgiveness. If we think, I would have never done that. You are fooling yourself. We fool ourselves into thinking that we will not sin that way. Pride. Entitlement. Uh, a sense that we deserve restitution or a certain kind of confession. Well, if they would say all of this that I demand, then I'll forgive them. Right? Because I'm entitled to a full, perfect confession. That can get in the way of forgiveness. Anger. Specifically unrighteous, sinful anger. Uh, if it's directed at the person instead of the sin, there's a distinction there. can get in the way of forgiveness. Uh, our own personal desires. Uh, if we desire uh, something that is uh, not in line with forgiveness, that might get in the way. For instance, an improper desire for justice, that we want to be judge, jury, executioner. Sometimes that comes into play. Uh, we think it needs to be just, it needs to be fair. Um, they should be punished. And they should be punished, right? They deserve that punishment. Um, forgetting that the punishment was always already borne by Christ on the cross. Uh, we don't need to desire their harm because this is self-serving, right? And then lastly, forgetfulness. Specifically in forgetting how much mercy and grace we've been shown. Uh, we forget that God has forgiven us immensely and where we would be apart from him and we might withhold forgiveness uh, so how yeah. do you, I heard people say, I forgive you, but I don't forget. Yeah. Well, and interestingly, I think that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, I forgive, but I don't forget. Yeah. Uh, scripture doesn't say we have to forget. It says that we respond a particular way to that person and loving that person. So, so forgiveness does not mean that we forget it. I'm going to get to that in, in oh, just okay. a second. Um, it means that we respond to them in the way that God has commanded us to respond to them. Um, so I want to be really careful there because sometimes we say we should forget it so that it's not being brought up again. I don't think we, we are required to forget, but I think we are required to be obedient to God and to love them um, and to act a particular way, even if we don't forget that it happened. The sin that they committed? You don't forget about the sin? No, I don't think we're required to forget the sin. Um, one day we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to give an account of all the sins we've committed. They've been paid for. And God acts towards us in a particular way because they've been paid for. But they're not forgotten. Because uh, what happened was between two good friends, best mm-hmm. friends, as one is committed, you know, the mm-hmm. wrongful act to the others. So the first one said that, okay, by the command of God, I forgive you. I will never forget the sin that you acted on yeah. me. Yeah. Um, so people judging the first one say that, then you're not fully forgiveness because well, you're supposed to forgive and forget. Yeah, so. and, and I, I, I think that's a fair pushback. But I would submit that, that really uh, the issue is not that she's not forgotten it, mm-hmm. but how is she holding on to that and it's hindering them right. more so than is it still in her memory? Right? That's what they're getting at. Okay. Not that she's forgotten it, yeah. but she is essentially saying, I'm holding on to this, and you're never going to do that to me again because I'm going to protect myself. That's not forgiveness. Okay. Whether or not it's in her memory, it can be in her memory, and she said, No, yeah. I'm going to pursue right relationship with you. I'll remember that, so I'll be wise if I see some of these yeah. red flags. Yeah. Right? Be more careful. Uh, but, but she doesn't necessarily have to purge it from her memory. Right. She, she can't hold on to it okay. and let it hinder. Yeah. So overcoming unforgiveness. 
Um, how do we deal with unforgiveness? Uh, first is that we want to confirm repentance. We want to confirm repentance um, and make sure that uh, the person understands that we have uh, we have repented to them and come before them. Uh, second, we want to make sure that we renounce any sort of sinful attitudes or expectations. Um, if there's something on our end um, that is wrong or is sinful, we want to get rid of those. Um, we want to remember God's forgiveness uh, towards us. And then practice the replacement principle, right? Remembering again, I've been forgiven, uh, and therefore I'm going to forgive, right? Putting away any of the uh, uh, sinful desires, sinful attitudes, and putting on um, love and kindness and grace, okay? Flying through this last uh, last slide, and then we'll have a few minutes for questions. Um, as we noted, forgiveness does not mean a couple of things. Forgiveness does not mean that there are no consequences, right? Uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, even when we discipline our children, uh, there's consequences there even if they say sorry, right? Second, forgiveness does not mean that we don't need time to rebuild the relationship. I think about uh, offenses and forgiveness and trust like a brick building. I use this imagery a lot with counselees. Uh, and when trust is broken or a sin is committed... It's like a wrecking ball comes and knocks down that brick building. And we don't repair it simply by taking those bricks and setting them right back down again in one piece. No, we have to lay brick by brick by brick by brick. And it takes time to rebuild that relationship that was knocked over with that wrecking ball. We are working towards it, and we're intentional, uh, but it might take time. Okay? Forgiveness? But it takes two, right? It does take two. It takes two, Yes. To do that, yeah, and rebuilding that trust and that relationship. Uh, it also does not mean that the, the offense will never happen again. Just because we say, I forgive you, doesn't mean that they may not do it this, again that same day. Right. And that's okay. Um, the offense may happen again, and we forgive 70 times 7. Uh, and it also doesn't mean that we can't adjust how we interact moving forward. So using that example earlier about an abusive situation, uh, that doesn't mean forgiveness does not mean that she goes right back into that situation uh, unhindered. No, that's foolish. That's not wise. Um, so we can adjust how we interact moving forward, and that doesn't mean we haven't forgiven them. It just means we want to be wise. Okay? All right, I know I flew through those last few slides, but what questions do you have in our last four or five minutes? Anything I can answer for you? Well, going through this, I can see that there's a lot of, you know, things that we don't take into mm -hmm. consideration when you try to forgive someone or, yeah. you know, like that. It's hard, but you always, when you get hurt, you will always think about yourself first. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But that's not what God has commanded us, right? right? It's supposed to think about loving Him and then loving others. Right. And us taking care of ourselves will flow naturally after that. We don't have to worry about that part. Yeah. Good. I also see the importance of parents in Yes. Because I'm going up and I am like seeing my parents come and say sorry to me when they do something for me. And then I don't know how to say sorry to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really like, um, you have to put effort on it and to learn 
You do. And it has to start early. Uh, I, I do not set myself up as a perfect model of this in any way. Uh, but I came from a family that, that I, I have to this day never heard a genuine apology from either parent. Uh, once. I take that back. One time. Um, for a really big thing. Um, but I remember when my son, who's now three, was four months old, I was overwhelmed. I was a new mama. There was a lot of stress, right? And he cried. He did something. Four months old. He's not necessarily choosing to sin against me. And I yelled at him. I'm not a yeller. I do not raise my voice very often. I yelled at him. And the Lord convicted me to go and repent to my four-month-old, who had no idea what was happening, right? no idea that I had sinned against him, yeah. right? Uh, and to apologize to him and confess to him that I had sinned. I want that to be the norm in my family. I don't want to sin against him, but when I sin against my children, I want them to see me get down on their level, in their face, and say, buddy, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me for my sin. So that when I ask them to do the same thing, they can do it. Right? They, they see me repent before the Lord, and they see me repent to them and to my husband when I sin against him, and it's normal, right? Instead of not knowing what it looks like, because I didn't know what it looked like, right? I saw it modeled in a family that I nannied for, <laughs> and I learned that from them by God's grace, right? Um, so, absolutely, we need to model this for our kids. I mean, come from, you know, we, we came from the same culture, culture yeah. and with my generation, I will. I never see my parents yeah. or any elderly people apologize to the kids, even though they know that they did wrong. Right. But they never. Yeah. So, but when I came here, I learned that behavior, like you have to apologize to your children when you did something wrong. Yeah. And I see that you know my children do the same thing when you know. It's yeah. not a strange language. Right, and it shouldn't be. Right. Because if we can't apologize to someone who we, is standing in front of us yeah. that we did wrong, are we genuinely repentant before God? And how are we teaching our children to repent right. to the Lord for their sin when we don't even acknowledge that we sin? Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I take this very seriously. Again, not as a perfect model because I've right. not done this well sometimes. Um, but God's grace is good in that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Good. Thank All you. right. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. Yes.